0: November fifteenth, two 2017 The government changes its strategy in the J-20 inauguration case An interview with anarchist squatters resisting eviction in Chicago An interview with a Polish anarchist And much more on this episode of The Hotwire A weekly anarchist news show brought to you by the ex-worker With me, the rebel girl Welcome back to The Hotwire This week we have a bunch of anti-fascist news from all over the world. We also have interviews with anarchists squatting in Chicago, an anarchist anti-fascist in Poland, and one of the supporters of the J-20 defendants with crucial updates on the first trial, which starts today. Listen until the end for new and exciting calls to action. If we miss something important or to include something in a future hotwire, shoot us an email at podcast at a full transcript of this episode with show notes and useful links can be found at our website, crimethink.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to The Hotwire on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The X worker You can also listen to us through the Anarchist Podcast Network, Channel Zero. Listeners in Tacoma, Washington can catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. on KUPS 90.1 FM. Believe it or not, Every Hotwire is radio-ready, so just get in touch if you'd like to put the Hotwire on your local airwaves. Our first season is coming to a close at the beginning of December, but we'll be back in February 2018 with our second season of Weekly Anarchist News. And now, for the headlines. Hunger strikes are breaking out in jails and detention centers across the country. Prisoners at Wabash Valley Correctional in Indiana have launched a hunger strike to protest deteriorating conditions. The Indiana Department of Corrections retaliates against politically conscious prisoners with solitary confinement and taking away good time that they've served. In our show notes, we have details for a call-in to support the striking prisoners. Check out the latest IGD cast for an interview with the group Indiana Department of Corrections Watch, who are organizing support for the strike. On Saturday, folks held a rally outside the Immigrant Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, to support those inside awaiting deportation. The group, Northwest Detention Center Resistance, has maintained regular demonstrations outside the detention center over the last year. We have a link for their Facebook page in our show notes. Last Thursday, a thousand immigrants and supporters, including high school students who walked out of class, occupied a Senate office building in D.C. to call for passage of the DREAM Act. Two months after Trump announced the end of DACA, a DREAM Act stopgap measure, and days after the administration announced the end of protections for thousands of Nicaraguan climate refugees. For anarchist perspectives on the DREAM Act and dreamer activism, check out our show notes for a recent episode of the Final Straw podcast, which has interviews with two Latinx organizers about DACA and the DREAM Act. As President Trump arrived in the Philippines on Sunday, hundreds of protesters clashed with police to demonstrate against Trump and U.S. imperialism in general. On Monday, they set fire to effigies of both President Trump and President Duterte of the Philippines. Over at Crimethink.com, you can find a DIY guide to making effigies so that your own protests may come alight. Friday was Veterans Day in the U.S. But anarchists in Florida chose instead to observe the day in memory of the Haymarket Martyrs, for whom it was the 130th anniversary of being hanged for being anarchists who opposed all nations and their armies. A banner was hung in Tampa that read, Solidarity with our Haymarket Martyrs, November 11, 1887 to November 11, 2017. Here you will tread upon a spark, but there and there and behind you and in front of you and everywhere flames will blaze up. Last week, anarchists in Moscow commemorated the centennial of the Russian Revolution with a lively illegal street march. We have a video linked in our show notes. On November 8th, the anniversary of Trump's election, a hundred anti-fascists and other anti-Trump demonstrators marched on Trump Plaza in West Palm Beach, Florida. On November 13th, White nationalists held a, quote, It's OK to Be White rally in Vancouver, Washington, the same city and date where neo Nazis beat to death Ethiopian immigrant Mulugeta Sera in 1988. The FASH originally intended to hang their It's OK to Be White banner on an interstate overpass, but 50 anti fascists showed up first with their own banners that read, Fight Racism, and Mulugeta Sera, We Fight in Your Memory. Not bad for 1 p.m. on a Monday. The white nationalists moved to another overpass a mile north, but anti-fascists were quickly on the scene and ripped down their It's Okay to Be White banner. Check out a link in our show notes to see a photo of the banner, which was corrected to now say, It's Okay to Be Anti-Fascist Action. In the evening, six or so anti-fascists and anti-racists met at the site of Seyra's murder and marched to the cemetery. Accompanied by a marching band and puppets. None of the far right was anywhere in sight. Last Wednesday, at Anani Info, a Twitter handle associated with the hacktivist collective Anonymous, announced the takedown of websites associated with League of the South, a white supremacist group who participated in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville and the White Lives Matter rally in Tennessee. Two of their domains, including their main website, were down for days. On Sunday, in Montreal, thousands rallied against racism and Islamophobic Bill 62, which would ban face coverings like niqab's from public buildings. Ahead of the rally, a group of self-described anti-colonial anti racists covered a statue of one of Canada's founding fathers, John A. Macdonald, with red paint. In a communique claiming the action, the anti-racist stated, quote, John A. Macdonald was a white supremacist. He directly contributed to the genocide of indigenous peoples with the creation of the brutal residential school system, as well as other measures meant to destroy native cultures and traditions. He was racist and hostile towards non-white minority groups in Canada, openly promoting the preservation of a so-called Aryan Canada. He passed laws to exclude peoples of Chinese origin. He was responsible for the hanging of Metis martyr Louis Riel, McDonald's statue belongs in a museum, not as a monument taking up public space in Montreal. The statement ends with Ni Patrie, ni Etat, ni Quebec, ni Canada. We'd like to say congratulations to the student organizers at Virginia Tech for successfully driving an alt right teaching assistant with strong ties to neo Nazis from their school. The students have been organizing for months through a series of demonstrations and educational campaigns, but unsurprisingly, the university was unresponsive. The protests at Virginia Tech show two things. First, that the Southern Poverty Law Center's model of going to the school administration to ask politely for change simply doesn't work, even in the face of one student organizer receiving death threats from neo-Nazis. This same reality has played out across the U.S. as various schools such as CSU Stanislaus and UC Berkeley have done nothing to expel neo-Nazi students and have given a huge cover for the alt-right to organize. But Virginia Tech also shows the power of mass collective direct action on campus, which physically forced a neo-Nazi troll out of their community. The conflict at Virginia Tech shows how we can't depend on the authorities to solve these problems. They're only interested in keeping order and not with ensuring safety in our communities. Last Hotwire, we repeated an uncredible story from Politico about the Department of Homeland Security labeling Antifa as a terrorist group, and we'd like to issue a correction. The good folks at Antifa International got in touch and pointed out, while this story has been picked up by some larger news outlets... They all rely on one journalist who has an obvious bias against anti-fascists and who suspiciously seems to be the only source to have seen or heard about the supposed homeland security documents in question. Now, there are certainly government forces trying to criminalize anti-fascists. But we don't want to include fake news stories and state them as facts, lest it embolden our opponents who spin them, or worse, drive folks away from anti-fascist organizing. Thanks again to Antifa International for catching our mistake. We have a detailed fact-checking of that Politico article linked in our show notes. Whenever we have corrections and clarifications to make, we include them at the bottom of each episode's show notes at crimethink.com slash podcast. In Poland, 60,000 far-right nationalists marched against Muslims and immigration on November 11th, the country's Independence Day. The march was organized by a fascist, anti-Semitic group, But some analysts commented that it's possible not all of the march participants knew of the organizers' explicit fascist beliefs. However, in the march's coverage, plenty of neo-Nazi and white supremacist symbols can be seen. Plus banners with slogans like, Pray for an Islamic holocaust, Europe will be white, and clean blood. Fascists from Sweden, Hungary, Slovakia, Italy, and elsewhere in Europe came to Warsaw for the march. Richard Spencer was scheduled to go, but canceled at the last minute. A coalition of fascist groups, including one called Nationalist Autonomy, held a nationalist black block. The Nationalist March was a dismaying spectacle. But there was anti-fascist opposition. 5,000 attended a counter-protest organized by Antifa Warsaw, and about a dozen elderly women bravely locked arms and sat in the path of the march, disrupting it. The old women were eventually injured by fascist marchers and dragged out of their way. Anti-fascists held signs invoking Heather Heyer's name, linking their struggle to the struggle against white supremacy here in North America. We were lucky enough to catch up with one anarchist from Poland who was on the streets protesting fascism and racism that day. Thanks so much for speaking with us. What happened in Warsaw on Saturday? What did you see?
1: Um on saturday in Warsaw we had um one of the biggest if not the biggest nationalist demonstrations in europe it's regular demonstration it's happening since almost 10 years but uh for i don't know maybe six years it's it's got it, it has got really massive and it's like for many years now, uh, there are anti-fascist demonstrations that are uh, being held 11th of November. For the last two years, they were held the same day. and uh, But since 2011, uh, the formula of the demonstration is non-confrontational because the, like, the amount of people on our side and then on, on their side is pretty... It doesn't give us lots of chances.
0: How did this march get so big? Were there developments, missed opportunities perhaps, that anti fascist in other spheres could be aware of?
1: Uh... This is what is happening, this so-called autonomous nationalism thing, uh, which is pretty much copying all the like radical left or subcultural factors and taking them, appropriating them, uh, is pretty much what is happening everywhere in Europe right now. I mean, I, I think this is, it is quite good to always uh, acknowledge that, I don't know, Black Bloc uh, and Swedish movement and... Uh, all this stuff they are appropriating will never be theirs, and this is a, this is just completely not understandable copy, and uh, that they are they just can't invent anything under the, for their own, and I, uh, I I think this is a good thing to acknowledge all the time. When people were starting to organize this march, this nationalist march, it was pretty marginal and uh, like mostly hardcore neo-Nazis coming there and uh, it had like a, quite a strong uh, quite, quite a strong resistance towards it and then afterwards uh, when they got connected with uh, with some people with lots of money this is when the, the match has grown really really rapidly yeah this is what, what was happening I guess with with alt-right movement in the US for the last few years, and this is what what you have results right now, but maybe in bigger scales, uh, Nazis connecting with money are always dangerous.
0: Let's remember that fascism never goes away on its own. Unopposed, it grows. We have a list of anti-fascist organizing resources linked in this episode's show notes at crimethink.com podcast. Also in Poland, police arrested 22 anti-logging activists for blocking the headquarters of Poland's Forest Management Agency. One of the activists who chained himself to the building had this to say. We're calling for the withdrawal of heavy machinery from the Biolaweza forest. All of our activity, peaceful marches, petitions, blockades at the scene, have had no effect. Forest management continues to fell trees despite the decision of the European judiciary. And so we opted for this ultimate form of protest. Last week, Indiana's Department of Natural Resources sold the timber rights to 300 acres of Yellowwood State Forest backcountry, home to some of the oldest and most diverse trees in the state. Despite over 200 people showing up to protest the sale, months of organizing against the planned logging and a recent protest encampment on private property adjacent to the public land to be logged, the DNR insisted on selling another piece of some of the most wild and beautiful land in the state for a mere $108,000. So during the weekend, the group NOPE, which stands for Night Owls Paint and Exteriors, painted hundreds of additional trees to match those marked for removal to obscure the trees Hamilton Logging bought and to force the DNR Division of Forestry to redo the work of marking those tracks, thus delaying when logging can start. In a communique found on the Earth First Newswire, NOPE stated, Quote, To other defenders of Yellowwood, there are many more trees left untouched. All it takes is red or blue marking paint and some careful navigation. They conclude the communique with We wish you luck and look forward to all the other creative and inspiring ways you'll think of to protect the land. What a hoot! Resistance to pipelines and extraction continues all over North America. Last month, in Charlottesville, Virginia, anti-pipeline activists held a People's Tribunal against the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Virginia's part of the project is pending approval in December, but Earth defenders are preparing to stop the pipeline before it gets built. For more about the Atlantic Coast and Mountain Valley pipelines in Virginia, West Virginia, and North Carolina, check out soundcloud.com slash pipelinepodcast. Folks interested in fighting the Atlantic Coast pipeline in Virginia can get involved by going to facebook.com slash noACPVA. In Nova Scotia, the indigenous Mi'kmaq Treaty Camp, which blockades the entrance of the Alton Gas Project, is still going strong. But they're in need of support and donations. Check out our show notes for a short info video from Submedia about the camp and how you can help. On Friday, water protectors halted the last piece of construction for the Wisconsin section of Enbridge's proposed Line 3 replacement project. In defense of the earth, two water protectors locked together and weathered freezing temperatures inside a segment of steel pipe. A water protector stated, We have attended public hearings, marches, and rallies. At this point, we feel like the only way we can make our voices heard is by locking our bodies to the equipment. We want them to stop expanding TarSan's infrastructure. We need to be thinking about our children's futures. For the past 13 months, anarchists in Chicago have kept alive the IRL Squat, a former homeless shelter owned by the gentrifying, billion-dollar investment company, Barnett Capital. Last week, they issued a statement, part of which reads, All entrances to the building have been barricaded and we are bunkered down in our squatted fortress. To Barnett Capital, we say, It's on. We are committed to making it physically, socially, and financially implausible for them to carry out their war on poor people. To our comrades fighting in this war, we say, Don't give in. We have pushed past the limits of what all respectable organizations deemed possible. We have proved that we can make these f**kers fear us. Rent is their illusion. It's up to us to shatter it. Squat the world. These days, with so much of anarchist struggle focused on opposing fascist visions of the world, this rebel girl was uplifted, and frankly, pretty giddy, at the brave resistance of the IRL squatters in Chicago. Besides making authoritarian blueprints untenable, we should also be planting seeds of radically free ways of life, ones that call into question sacred institutions like private property and the morality of law itself. And when those experiments become conflictual, mm hmm, this rebel girl just has to get her interview on. So, what's the background of the squat? Has it just been a living space, or has it served wider social and political communities?
2: Um, So before our time at IRL, um, it had already been a squat for a year. And, you know, we're talking about something like 13 or 14 different units because it's two two huge buildings. It was a lot of families, Mexican families. And, you know, the whole thing exploded into, I don't know, just it it felt very different than anything we'd ever done before because everything uh, before as far as like squatting. Because a lot of us come from a network of squatters that have been doing this for over six years. And this one just felt different just because it had involved uh, so many different people coming from some, t- coming from very different identities and, you know, also people that uh, reject identity as well.
3: Um, so throughout the past six months, there was uh, like an attempt to start a weekly squat luck dinner, which we kind of conceived as a squat workshop that would be open to the public um, and they were really cool. We invited a bunch of people. We wheat pasted the neighborhood, um, and got some people to show up, um, who were just interested in learning about what squatting meant and how it was done. Um, and in the bottom of the squat, there's also a squatted barber shop. That was a really important part aspect of the space. Also, we had a lot of parties and fundraiser parties, um, there, as you know, the side of the building says Free Care Wild, so we kind of used the space that we had to send out a big public message to the whole neighborhood. Um, like, the squad itself had a very, very, very wide social sphere um, in that, like, many, many people used the space and came to the space. And at one point, we actually ran ABC, Chicago ABC, out of the
2: space. You know, our best friend, uh, Mikey, uh, a really well-known anarchist graffiti writer here in the city of Chicago, uh, was murdered and you know, the day of his wake, uh, we led a funeral procession. We took the streets, we marched from the location of the wake and we took the street, we took Cermak and marched all the way to the squat. And it was just one of those really beautiful moments where people were playing music, uh, doing graffiti all over Cermak, And, you know, we arrived at this, like, beautiful, uh, liberated, um, autonomous, uh, you know, building that all our energies, like, help start and just, like, turn into this really beautiful and conflictual place. And, you know, there was, like, all these banners and, um, you know, huge letters uh, wrote fake culture because that was, you know, his graffiti name. And, yeah, just, you know, I I think a really important part of uh, insurrection is joy. And I think that that place was... um, you know, obviously full of a lot of, like, really tragic things that happened to us, but I think it was, like, a really beautiful and dope exercise in just living life um, in a way that we want, want to live it, um, a life full of joy.
0: Why are you all getting evicted, and why did you decide to fight the eviction the way you are?
3: So, yeah, the,
2: the resistance to eviction has been going on more or less uh, since last summer. Uh, At this point, um, even though we don't have any uh, legal uh, argument for our stay there, uh, we have decided to stay uh, as a way of uh, unmasking the violence of Barnett Capital and its role in the gentrification of the area. Then I just wanted to add on the point of, you know, why exactly we are being um, evicted. We've been asking very different types of questions as to um, particularly whose land we occupy um, in this colonial setting. And you know we came up with a set of um, responses uh, that we've sort of been like playing with for, for, ne- for a number of years now. And you know one of those is just to illegally take over land and uh, illegally occupy dwellings.
3: As a part of this final push for the evicted, eviction defense, um, we've received a lot of support, from the greater anarchist community. And that's been amazing. And what we're also trying is to not be insular within the anarchist community, but to um, be very like connected as as best we can to like the greater fight of poor and working class people. And we actually made a flyer that is like a simple bullet pointed list of how this development project is going to affect the lives of the people living in Little Village, which is the neighborhood of the squat.
0: Thanks so much for speaking with us. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement for other people at war with rent?
2: Yeah, I, I guess uh, a piece of advice would be to take over whatever buildings are empty in your town and your city, and you know, confront uh, the management companies, the landlords, and uh, whatever big capital is trying to transform it. Right?
3: Yeah, I guess um, before I joined this crew of people, I had the kind of concept in my head that squatting in the U S was a thing of the past or that political squats were a thing of the past. And I think that's, what's so important um, about our message and why it has so much traction right now is that like, this is a very possible and doable and incredible thing that you can do. And that, yeah, I just would like everybody to know that they can do it too, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> okay. ready Zay? Swap the world.
0: It's Going Down, it's a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate. And rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. On Saturday in Philadelphia, supporters of the 190 people facing unprecedented charges for protesting Trump's inauguration held a rally on the rocky steps at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. The atmosphere was festive with music, dancing, and beautiful enormous puppets that ridiculed the state in this outrageous case. It turns out the festive rally did indeed have something to celebrate. Just on Monday, the prosecution reduced December's trial group from two misdemeanors and six felonies to just three misdemeanors. As we go to press... Jury selection for the first group of J-20 defendants is scheduled to begin today, Wednesday, with opening statements following any day now. With developments happening so quickly, we recommend keeping up with at Defend J-20 on Twitter and Instagram or going to defendj20resistance.org. We caught up with Sam from D.C. Legal Posse about the latest.
4: The trial for the first group of J-20 defendants starts today, November 15th. On Monday, uh, November 13th, the defendants in the second trial group, which is scheduled to start December 11th, unexpectedly had their charges reduced from six felonies and two misdemeanors to three misdemeanors without any explanation. Their charges and the case-in-chief documents put forward by the prosecution's office are largely identical to the uh, defendants who are facing trial starting tomorrow. And that reduction was only as a result of Uh, logistical complications brought about due to solidarity, the strong solidarity of all the defendants who are standing together and organizing together to resist these political charges and the state repression. Um, The charge reduction uh, that the December 11th defendants won is a partial victory, uh, and it's important to keep in mind that uh, over 180 other defendants are still facing uh, horrible potential punishments. Um, We need to to ramp up our solidarity and not let this partial victory give us a a false sense of security. Um, If this reduction of charges shows us anything, it shows us that our solidarity is strong and that we should only be doing even more collective action to bring about additional pressure on the prosecution, uh, additional pressure on the U.S. Attorney's Office, and to force them to reduce the charges further, uh, drop charges against more defendants, and hopefully uh, dismiss the cases entirely. In Washington, D.C., on January 20th, uh, a division of the mayor's office called the Office of Police Complaints deployed observers uh, to monitor police activity that day. They issued a preliminary report in February uh, documenting extensive brutality and uh, departures from standing operating, standard operating procedure and recommending a full independent investigation. Uh, it was recently uh, discovered by supporters of the J-20 defendants and elaborated by Sarah Lazare and The Intercept that the supposedly independent organization, uh, contracted to conduct the independent investigation, um, is actually run by cops and ex-cops, uh, and they largely are, have a reputation for exonerating cops and standing on the side of the police. Um, it's important that we put additional pressure on the D.C. government uh, in order to try and get them to conduct an actual independent investigation and to recognize that this ties the J-20 cases and the brutality on, it on Inauguration Day to other fights against police brutality uh, and other uprisings against the, the criminal injustice system across the country.
0: To support the J-20 defendants with your voice or with funds, visit dropj20.org and fundraiser.com slash j20resistance. That's f-u-n-d-r-a-z-r rcom slash j20resistance. We have links in our show notes at crimethink.com slash podcast. In Athens, Greece, political prisoners Pola Rupa and Nikos Maziotis from the anarchist guerrilla organization, Revolutionary Struggle has begun a new hunger strike. They released a long statement that is well worth the read, but to sum it up for y'all here, it criticizes the leftist Syriza party, the political repression against Revolutionary Struggle, and the Greek prison regime in general. The communique ends with demands against Maziotis's isolation and the use of isolation throughout Greek prisons, and they demand more time to visit each other and their child. We have a link to the full communique, as well as some of Rupa's and Maziotis's other writings, linked in our show notes at crimethink.com podcast. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for news. If you want us to include something in a future hotwire, just send us an email at podcast at We'll close out this hotwire with next week's news, our list of events that you can plug into in real life. Anarchist author Mark Bray is touring around the West Coast promoting his new book, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. This week, he has dates in Davis, California on the 15th, Stanford University in San Francisco on the 16th, Los Angeles on the 17th, Berkeley, California on the 18th, and San Francisco again on the 19th at the Howardson Book There, where Crime Think will be tabling and other great revolutionaries will be speaking like Cindy Milstein, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and former Black Panther political prisoner, Seiko Undinga. Check out our show notes for a link with Mark Bray's full tour details, including specific locations and times. The G7, the group of the seven wealthiest nations on Earth, will meet in Canada in June of 2018 to decide on matters that affect the fate of millions across the globe. Anti-G7 resistance is ramping up in Quebec. With an organizing meeting being held on November 18th at Comité Social Centre Sud in Montreal, we have the full details for the meeting in our show notes. On November 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern, CrimeThink.com will host a live video presentation in which an experienced legal support worker will explain what grand juries are, how they work, and how to resist them. Over the course of 2017, anarchists and radicals have actively resisted grand juries From Standing Rock to North Carolina. This presentation is intended to demystify a legal process that relies on secrecy, paranoia, and suspicion as a means to tear apart communities and resistance movements. One of our strongest weapons against this particular tactic of state repression is knowledge, alongside bold acts of solidarity. Find out more details in our show notes as well as a link to a brand new episode of the Ex-Worker podcast about surviving a grand jury with testimonies from anarchists who resisted them. From December 1st through 4th, Hudson Valley Earth First is hosting an action camp. They will be offering workshops, climb trainings, and most importantly, campaign updates. The Hudson Valley faces many fossil fuel infrastructure projects, all gearing up for construction as we speak. Learn about the Valley Lateral Pipeline, the Legoland Theme Park Project, the Competitive Power Ventures Power Plant, and how to plug into the local resistance. The exact location for the action camp is to be announced, but for the time being, you can RSVP or ask questions by emailing Hudson Valley Earth First at RiseUp.net or by going to HudsonValleyEarthFirst.org. The Animal Rights Gathering 2018 will take place on January 20th in Baltimore, Maryland. The Animal Rights Gathering seeks to carve out a space for intersectional, feminist, and anti-capitalist politics in the animal rights movement as a whole. You can find out more at ARGathering2018.wordpress.com. Also for January 20th, it's going down, crime Crimethink. And other signatories have issued a call to expand our networks and strengthen our spaces. We'll quote at length from the call We're calling for people to gather in anarchist and autonomous spaces on the week of January 20th, 2018, in order to reconnect to the roots from which our movements draw strength, discuss the path ahead, and gather resources for prisoners, relief efforts, and ongoing struggles. Autonomous spaces include info shops, community centers and bookstores, but an autonomous space can also be a public place you make a habit of gathering in or a territory you share and defend. The advantage of open spaces is that they offer a way for people who are freshly curious about our movements to plug in, pick up literature, and begin fostering relationships. The call proposes anti-cop block parties, fundraisers for the J20 defendants, screenings of submedia show Trouble, letter-writing nights for political prisoners, and plenty of other ideas for ways to come together to dream and scheme. Go to crimethink.com to read the full call. And that's it for your weekly hotwire. Many thanks to Sam from DC Legal Posse, the squatters at IRL, our comrade in Poland, and as always, thanks to Underground Reverie for the music. Don't forget to check out all the links, mailing addresses, and useful notes we have customized for this episode at crimethink.com. Every Hotwire episode is radio ready, so if you want to replay part or all of this show, just go for it. Just give us a heads up at podcast at crimethink.com. You can also send us news or announcements to include in the future. Stay informed, stay rebel, plug into the Hotwire.
2: Okay, ready,
3: ready,
0: Zay? Squad of the world!